Well, would you open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 1? Uh, we're going to study verses 6 through 18, but just for continuity and to just get a sense of the prologue of the book, we're going we're to begin reading in verse 1. Last Sunday, we talked about how important it is for us to fix our eyes on Jesus, not just glancing at him. I don't know how many of you guys, sometimes you count glancing at him as like, okay, that's what's really going to carry the day. And it really never carries the day. Just glancing at Jesus doesn't really carry the day. But, it, but really gazing at him, gazing at him in such a way, remember that old song, that the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know, it's been said that if we want to feel deeply about Jesus, Eric talked a little bit about apathy today. And listen, all of us, we have ebbs and flows in our lives. There's no one in here that doesn't have times when you're more apathetic than affectionate about your, about your Savior. So we all struggle with that. This is an interesting thought. In order to feel deeply about Jesus, we have to think deeply about Jesus. That's how we gaze at him. It's through the word. We see him in his word. And so let's be praying that, and this text today, wow, talk about gazing at Jesus and how I pray it would result in feeling not as an end in itself, but feelings that actually are expressed as worship with a heart that desires to live more devotedly to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. So would you stand with me as we, as we read God's holy and inspired an inerrant word, starting in John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Oh, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received Grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. 
Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Well, Lord, we, we, that's, what we, that's why we're here today. Make yourself known through Jesus Christ to our hearts and minds. Nothing could be more important about this day than knowing you. Oh, Lord, please, would you help us? Would you, would you pour out your spirit upon our service, upon our hearts, that we could think deeply about the word that became flesh? Help us to think deeply about that. Oh, Lord, we want to love you more devotedly and passionately and obediently than we've ever known before. Please, would you do that kind of work in our hearts through the preaching of your word today? And Lord, one other thing. Lord, it seems like this, this text is, you can't, is it, is, it, is, it, is it a sermon or is it a song? It seems like John is, is doing both. God, I pray that this, this sermon I'm going to preach today would be a song in the form of a sermon a song that would adore and praise you. Oh, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, last Sunday, I used my big old thumb, actually my little old thumb, in my eye as an illustration of how something so small can appear so big when it seems to dominate our field of vision, my field of vision. Remember what I did? I put my thumb up just right up by my eyeball. And even though something is so small as my thumb, it just could, it could block out things that are truly bigger than my thumb. And we use that as an illustration of how the things of this world can just fill our vision and we can lose sight of our Savior Jesus. Um, and have you ever noticed that what dominates your vision dominates your heart? What have you been most recently looking at? What have you been looking at this week? And what has been the fruit of that gaze, G-A-Z-E? What has been the fruit of that fixed, you're fixing your eye on something. It's probably dominated your heart. And it's either, if it's Jesus, it's been dominating your heart in peace, dominating your heart in faith, and dominating your heart in hope and joy. But it's been, if it's been other things, hasn't there been worry and fear and more prone to temptation and more prone to unbelief. Well, my point was yesterday, last Sunday that, that even though Jesus is God, we can make him small in our eyes by allowing ourselves to have other things dominate our, our vision, our thoughts, and our desires. So it'd be easy to think that the goal is just to get the thumb out of your eye, right? And so many times that's kind of the way we preach sermons, just get the thumb out of your eye. <laughs> Well, okay, get, those, get those, the things you're hoping in more than Jesus out of your eyes. Get the, the things you're fearing out of your eyes. Get the idols that we so easily accumulate in our hearts. Get them out of our eyes. But you know, that's not bad. But I don't know that's the first thing that you do. I think the first thing that would serve us better would be actually to see and savor Jesus and his glorious beauty so clearly and so often that we're inspired to do anything we can to keep our eyes on him, to not let anything get in the way of seeing him 
clearly. I was trying to think of things to compare, just a sort of earthly illustration of that. Maybe, maybe you're watching a movie and it's in a critical part of the movie and it's a scene where you, it's just, you don't know, is the good guy gonna win or the bad guy gonna win? Or, or will the girl, will, will the guy get the girl? I'm not sure which is <laughs> more appropriate nowadays, but you see, would the guy get the girl? And right at that time, and you're, sit, and you're sitting up in your seat and you're ready to see what the conclusion of this thing is all about. And five people in your row get, decide they need popcorn. And here they, and they are just, and they're moving like snails. Don't they know that I need to see something that's important to me? And don't you feel like you're just about to lose your Jesus a little bit there? I mean, don't, you know, it's, not that we, if you're, <laughs> theologically, that cannot happen. Um, but, but how about this? Maybe this way to say it. Lord, help me, because I feel like I'm, I know you're never going to lose your grip on me, but I'm losing my grip on you right now. I want to grab those popcorners and get them out of the way so I can see what's going on. You know, we're a baseball family, and so certainly the playoffs come into mind, and go Astros, just a little word there. But um, imagine this. It's bottom of the ninth, two outs. Um, you're up three runs, and you're in the field. Your team is in the field, and the pitch. It's a long fly ball to left. It's going. It's going, and you're, you're standing up because you want to see this. So does the knucklehead in front of you who stands on his seat, and you don't see the guy leaps up into the to the sky, he leaps up into the sky. He reaches over the wall, he makes the most miraculous catch. His head hits the wall, he's concussed. He falls down and he still held the ball. And you win, but you lost because you didn't see it. Or maybe a little more sentimental, a little bit more. Have you ever been behind somebody in church whose head Not, it's not big, it's not a big head, but, <laughs> but the proximity of their head looks, makes it look like it's a big head. And you can't see anything that's going on on the platform. You're already having trouble with just staying focused and everything. And so you lean your head to the right. Well, the, the person, they lean their head to the right. It's almost like they're doing this on purpose. If you've ever been to a wedding and you're dying to see the bride and groom, that one got to me because I'm a mushball. Anybody, anybody, get, anybody besides me get just mushy over father of the bride? Can I just see at least one hand? Thank you, Danielle. Danielle, you and I, and we'll, you know, Alan, let's watch father of the bride this week. <laughs> Especially when Steve Martin, remember, he's wanting to dance with his daughter. And then he's pulled out into the outside and all these a thousand cars are parked in his front yard. And now he's got to mess with getting the cars around. And you remember the day, he, he comes in and he's, he's looking for his daughter. He's wanting to see his daughter. And he's trying to get there and he, wait, wait, they're already leaving? He's missed the dance, he's missed the dinner. And they're already leaving. She's about to throw her bouquet. And so he thinks he's going to get a shortcut. And he goes, and he's going up the stairs. And he thought, he, he, because nothing's going to keep me from seeing the most valuable, precious thing to the heart of a dad. And that would be a daughter. 
And she throws the bouquet, and they go down the stairs, out the door, into the car, just when Steve Martin is getting to the top of the stairs. And he misses his daughter. I had something like that happen to me when Josh and Alexis got married a couple weeks ago. You know how much I love my, my kids, my sons, and the girls that God's giving my sons. And I was working on getting the marriage license signed, and... Uh, and I thought we had plenty of time, and all of a sudden I hear this scurrying. And people, hurry, we all need to get out. Josh and Alexis are leaving. And I'm having these nightmares. All of a sudden, these nightmares of Father of the Bride are hitting me. And, and it's like, oh, come on, let's go greet them. Get all your sparklers, and we're going to do the sparkler thing and all this. I don't care about sparklers. I want to kiss my kids. That's what I want to do. I want to kiss my kids. I want to hug my kids. And I'm trying to get to them. No, you have to come this way. And I'm getting pulled. I'm the father. I, you know wait a minute, and they're just, and it was all happening so fast that I barely get, I could just, I had to just go down with all the sparkler people. <laughs> I'm the dad. You're just sparkler people, you know? And, but then, then my, they put my granddaughter Tatum in my arms, and that was almost okay. That was just about almost okay. But So here they go, and I didn't get to hug and kiss them. All that to say, of all the things we feel so deeply about, all the things that we will try so hard to keep out of our vision, keep from blinding us, shouldn't it be Jesus? Shouldn't seeing him more clearly, shouldn't that be what most grips our heart? So yeah, we need to get the thumb out of our eye, but God wants to give you great inspiration as to why you should do it. Because when we behold him, we see the glory of God. So that's where we're going to go this morning. So our main point is this. Jesus is fully God, fully man, and fully able to give us the grace we need to be saved and satisfied in him. Oh, let us see that today, Lord. And let us see it regularly and more clearly with each passing moment. So here's the first point this morning, and we, we, you saw it when we read. We're to reflect the light of Christ. And certainly it's talking about John the Baptist, who was the first, uh, really, since Jesus' arrival to, to, as a prophet, the last prophet of the Old Testament, he is reflecting the light of Christ. So verse 6 says, A man was sent from God named John. Uh, he was sent from God to be a witness of Christ the light. He was sent from God to announce the arrival of Jesus. I want you to think of that moment, the state of the union, when the man comes forward first and he says, Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. And that's a, that's a to me, that kind of gives me goosebumps. That moment is, is it's, it's, you know, and... And regardless of whether you're for him or against him, there's still, at least there used to be, some sense of honor of the office. We're going to honor the office. Well, what an announcement. What if you were called? What, Ray, what if they called you and said, Ray, we want you to introduce the president? What an, don't think politically. God. I, some of you guys, I know you're going, oh, well, I'm not sure that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it, it should be an honor. Well, how about this? God's called John the Baptist to say something like this. Fallen people of the world, 
the living word, he who had no beginning, he who was present in the beginning, when there was nothing, he already was. He who for all eternity was with God, the Father, as God the Son. He who made all things, he who is life, he who is the light that the darkness cannot overcome, the only one who can save us from our sins. This is the promised Messiah. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now there should be trumpet blasts with that, right? That should be, da, 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 da. I don't even know what the, what, what would the heaven song be? I don't know what that would be. Well, verse eight, it, it goes further and it says, listen, John was not the light, but he was a reflection of the light for the world to see. And that's important because John was super well-known. Matthew 11 really highlights this. He said that really there was, there was no one born to woman who had arisen that was any greater than John the Baptist. People were even wondering before Jesus had been clearly revealed and, and announced, people were even wondering, is John the Baptist the Messiah? Listen, a witness is one who gives a truthful testimony of what they see, what they know, what they hear, and what they experience. And what's the goal? What's the goal of being a witness? Well, verse 7, the last part of verse 7 tells us that people would believe. We're going to linger on that point just for a minute because really the, the whole gospel of John, I think, calls us to. Andreas Kostenberger, who's written a really wonderful commentary on the gospel of John, he says this. Would you follow along in your notes? In John's gospel, the word believe, first used here in verse 7, this is boggling, occurs close to 100 times. Almost three times that of Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined. John virtually never uses the noun faith in his writings, though he's not averse to understanding belief as the affirmation of certain religious truths. He's much more concerned about active relational trust in Jesus Christ. I love that. And, 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 it's, and it's, we're not just making that up. That's, a, that's, that's the gospel of John. It's speaking of, of not a faith that Jesus exists, but there's, it's become personal. There's a personal trust. Listen, there are people that you, you have some sense of, of faith in that they're going to do their job. But the word trust is a little different, isn't it? The word trust implies there's a relationship between us. The word, the word trust just seems to make things a little more intimate. Well, isn't that what salvation is? It's an active relational trust in the one who came to save you from your sins. John desires that his witness for Christ would result in this personal trust of Christ, a love of his, uh, of his character, an amazement of his saving grace, his work on the cross for sinners, his promise to keep saved all who are saved, his power to send us to live on mission for him. John the Baptist gave such a powerful testimony and witness for Christ. He was so convicted by the good news. He was, he was willing to die for it. So, but here's, here's what's amazing. Because now, get ready. I'm going to kind of land the plane for a second in our, in our town. How should this affect us? How should this affect us? John never saw Christ crucified. John was already killed. He was beheaded. 
John never saw Christ crucified. John never saw Christ risen. John never saw the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God. John never experienced the pouring out of the Spirit on the church on the day of Pentecost. Shouldn't we be even more bold in our witness than John the Baptist? I think the answer is yes. I think that text is here. Let's, listen, some, some notes in your, in, some, in your notes. Here we go. Um, Truly I say to you, Matthew eleven eleven. among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Well, why is that? Well, Acts 1, 8 tells us. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So that's where, that's where the plane lands in our town today. Um, guys, of all the people on earth, God's given us strength and power. We're not the lights. I don't even think we're good flashlights or candles, but we reflect the one who is the light so that people could believe relational active trust in Jesus the Savior. Do you know there's unbelievers in this church every Sunday? Do you know that? And you might be going, <laughs> is it you? You know? You can find them really easily because they all skedaddle out of here at the end of the singing. Not that they're not, there are kids that are saved, I'm not saying that. But do you know there are unbelievers in our church every Sunday that God calls not just our workers to be a witness to, but our entire church family. So he's called us to be a witness. How about your sphere of influence, your neighborhood, your workplace, your sports, uh, your athletics, your hobbies, your community service, Rancho 3M, Nepal. Listen, you notice that the Lord seems to be adding to our church family. There's, there's becoming to be fewer and fewer seats on Sunday. How are we going to be a witness to the world on Sunday? So listen, our, our evangelism strategy is go and tell. And yes, yeah, certainly invite people, come and see. But if we continue growing the way we are, do we, do we want, what are we going to do? We ask you to be praying about this and join us in seeking God about this. Would we ever, Steve pointed out parking today, you know, the, the statistics are if the church is 80% full, somebody walks in and they're very prone to just walk back out because it's hard to find a seat. How do, we, how do we portray Jesus? How do we be a witness of this amazing Savior who died to save people from their sins? How do, we, how do we do church on Sundays with a growing number of people in a way that never turns people away? that welcomes people. Ask that you be praying about that. That's, those, are, those are questions that we're talking and asking ourselves about and talking to God, and praying to the Lord about. So that's, that's the first point. Second point is we're to receive the salvation of Christ. So we're to be a reflection of Christ the Savior, but we're also supposed to receive him. Uh, we're to be a reflection of Christ. 
we learn that the goal of being a witness is that people believe, that people receive the witness, which is, and now so John is going to go drill down a little, John the Apostle is going to drill down deeper in terms of what the witness is to do in, in regard to people believing. Verse 9 calls it, there's the true light, which, which gives light to everyone is coming into the world. So the true light doesn't mean that the light that was shown in the Old Testament was, was false. It's, it's really something that says genuine, not artificial. It's not man-made. It's ultimate and supreme. Did God shine light about the coming of a Messiah in the Old Testament? You bet he did. But this is the ultimate and the supreme light. Um, Jesus is the ultimate light because he is the light. That's why he's the ultimate light. And it gives light to everyone. So does that mean everyone gets saved? No, that's not what it's saying. We know that and we'll see it in our text. So many times just the surrounding verses around our text can, can answer hard questions. So does this mean everyone gets saved? Is this universal salvation? No, because in a few verses we're going to see that though he created the world, he came into the world and the world didn't know him. And he came to his own, and those who were his own didn't know him. So everyone is not getting saved. That's not what this means. But Jesus is an, a historical figure, certainly noted by both Roman and Jewish historians. And the light of Christ has come and caused a shaking, an influence in the earth. And the issue is, how will you respond to the light? Imagine hearing these words for the very first time. This light, this person, this eternal person, this word has come into the world? Man, how do we get in on that? Imagine how you would feel if you heard someone well-known or highly ranked was coming to see us. Imagine if we announced and said, next Sunday, John Piper will be in our service. I would be happy about that. That would be great. Those of you Cowboys fans, what if we said next Sunday Dak Prescott is going to be in our service? How about a man I love dearly? He's one of my dearest friends. How about if we said Mayor Patrick Payton will be in our service next Sunday? There, there'd be a response to it, wouldn't there? There'd be this, this sense of anticipation. Maybe it's a little, a little bit different of a day. Maybe we lean in a little bit more. But what was the response to the light coming into the world? The world was made through him, but did not know him, verse 10 says. This, this is supposed to shock us. How can that be? Light, the eternal light, the eternal world has come into the world, and the world didn't know its creator? How could that be? Not love, not fear, not worshiped. Can you imagine Jesus coming and tapping you on the shoulder? Hi, I'm Jesus. See that tree over there? I made that. You, you don't believe that? See that sea see that over there? I, I made that. You don't believe that either? I made you. Wait, you're pushing me away? You know, I made the arms that are pushing me away. I mean, how in the world can this be? How in the world can this be? Well, I think we'll understand it better by how the book of John uses the word 
world. So D.A. Carson's gonna come to our rescue there. Look at in your notes. Closer inspection to the word world in John shows that although a handful of passages preserve a neutral emphasis for that word, the vast majority are decidedly negative. There are no unambiguously positive occurrences of that word in, in the book. The world, or frequently this world, is not the universe, but the created order, and especially of human beings and of human affairs in rebellion against its maker. Therefore, when John tells us that God loves the world, far from it being an endorsement of the world, it is a testimony to the character of God. God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. So well said, isn't it? That's the light. That, and that's why the light was rejected. People were still guilty, though, whether by ignorance. Uh, they, they might think, well, I was ignorant to that. No, sorry. God has revealed himself in really three ways, and Christ is the most pronounced and prolific way. He's, he's revealed himself in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. He's revealed himself in, even in your conscience. There's a law at work in everyone's hearts. But most significantly, he's revealed himself in Christ. This is what's heart-wrenching. The main reason people reject the light isn't because of ignorance. It's never because of just ignorance. Look at what the word says. This will, this will come in our study of John 3. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. We love not being accountable. We love not being told what to do. We love living for personal glory and personal pleasure, even if it hurts or marginalizes or uses or abuses someone else. So today, if you, if you don't know Jesus and you're rejecting him today, here's the reality. You're rejecting the one who so loved you that he gave his life on the cross. You're rejecting him because you're, you love the things of this world more than him. You're fascinated more by football teams and dollar, dollars and cents and stock market quotes and how big your house is. No, it's a love issue. You don't love him because you love the world. And you're in a state of moral insanity. And God comes with Jesus to shine the light, to bring you out of the darkness of your sin and your guilt and your shame, and to give you a love like you never dreamed would be, be possible. Oh, how I pray you'll come to Jesus. Verse 11 says it gets worse. The world doesn't know him, but he came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. The people he chose to give a special revelation of the coming Christ to, he, they rejected him. These were the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had the written word of God in the Old Testament. They had the law, the prophets, the covenants, the tabernacle, the temple, the sacrifices, the festivals, all pointing to the coming Messiah. Yet in spite of all those privileges, they did not receive him. 
He was not welcomed by them, but viewed as worthless. Now I'm speaking of of both Gentile and Jew. God came to the earth and the people he made killed him. Think of times in your life where you felt great pain. At least I bet some of us would say, some of my greatest pain in my life is because of betrayal by someone that I thought loved me. Or rejection by those you've loved and served. You feel like you're tossed aside like yesterday's trash by those you worked with or those you ministered to. It happens in marriages, doesn't it? A husband is rejected by his wife. A parent is rejected by his child. You know how that feels. Isn't there something down in the core of our being that demands justice? I should be received. I'm the husband. Or I could be the wife. I should be received. I'm the wife. I should be received. I'm the parent. Remember that Bill Cosby goofy thing? I brought you into the world. I could take you out of the world. I'm I'm your parent. There's just something in us that says justice. Aren't you glad that there was nothing in God that said justice? I'm going to get back at you. Aren't you glad that God's response was, I'm going to send my son to die for your rejecting me. I'm going to satisfy justice, but it would be upon him. All of the punishment your rejection deserves is placed upon Christ. And all of the forgiveness you don't deserve is offered to you through Christ. Verse 12. We've gone down into the valley of despair in some ways, right? Valley of despond. But then look, verse 12. But, but God, I think we could say, this is John's way of saying, but God. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The word receive and believe, equal words here. It's active, affectionate, relational trust in Jesus, the Son of God. It says he gave the right to become children of God. What does that mean? Well, those of you, we, I'm so, our church is so blessed. I so appreciate all of our families that are doing foster care or adoption. It so pictures Jesus for us. So thank you not only for the kids that are being blessed, but thank you for the witness that we're receiving as a result of your hearts. It's, it's adoption language. There's a, there is a legal declaration here that there is an authority that gives a person a right to become a children of God, loved with the very same love that God has for his only begotten son, Jesus. Somebody might say, yeah, but I thought we were children of God already. Why do we need this Jesus? Listen, just being born does not make you a child of God. The only way that you become a child of God is to be born again. Being born into this world means being born and dead in sin and transgression. Being born again is relational trust coming into your life where you love him and adore him and want to follow and serve him. So being born doesn't make you a child of God. Being born again will. 
And so you kind of see how John is setting up the future, the, the, all, the, the, all of this book. It's just amazing, this, the masterpiece of this book. Let's keep going. It's not of blood. It's not of your heritage. It's not because you were a Jew uh, in the context here of the scriptures. It's not, it, you, not everyone who was a Jew was true Israel. Remember that. It's not because of who your parents were. So, to, so I'm, I'm talking now to my younger, younger uh, friends or brothers and sisters. You're not going to heaven because your parents love Jesus. I wish I could just take, you know how I love to take faces. Wish I could take your face and I wish I could say, listen, just know you're not going to heaven because mom and dad love Jesus. There's got to be you put your faith in him. You have to put your faith in him. It's not of heritage. It's not of blood. You're not going to go because your parents and your grandparents Love Jesus. You need Jesus, young one. And Jesus loves you, young one. And he will meet you today with saving grace if you'll turn and give your heart to him. Not of the flesh, not of the will of the flesh, meaning it's not a human decision. It, doesn't, it means you didn't take enough Sunday school classes to graduate into salvation. Thank you, I've got my, my salvation diploma. I've learned so much from my classes. It's, it's not a human decision. It's not an initiative that man can take. Why? Man loves the darkness. Something has to change inside of that person for them to be drawn to the light and attracted to the light. You don't decide on your own to become a Christian. You need God to act upon your heart by his grace and his gospel. That's what takes the heart of stone and turns it into a heart of flesh so that you can believe. You have to believe. It's, it's an amazing mystery, right? We sang about it. It's an amazing mystery. God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility. He goes further to say it's not of the will of man just like a, uh, you know, let's talk, talk about just religious organizations. This church can't give you salvation. Your elders can't give you salvation. There's no religion on earth that can give you Jesus. God wants to give you Jesus. And we're, all we're doing today is saying, we're pointing you to that God. We're pointing you to that Jesus. So it's not of the will of man. How does it happen? Well, the text says, doesn't it? They're born of God. Isn't this wonderful to hear that God, the accent, we certainly need to make a choice, but the accent is not on man's choice. The accent is on God's grace. And everybody here saved says, amen. Because Jesus, I was, in my, I was running my hellbound race, weren't you? Indifferent to the cost. And he looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. Wow, amazing grace. That's why the darkness can't overcome the light. So if you reject Jesus, precious ones, it's a more serious offense than you'll ever understand. And if you receive Jesus, it's the biggest miracle you'll ever experience. How many of you maybe this week were going, gosh, I need a miracle. I need a miracle because my life is not gonna make it if I don't get a miracle in, in this blank. You have a miracle. The miracle of miracles. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Well, speaking of the miraculous, let's go further. We're to rejoice in the glory of Christ. And this is the last four verses, 14 through 18. What, what makes becoming a child of God possible? Well, 
the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now John, more than any part of this, this, this section, he seems to not just be preaching a sermon, he seems to be singing a song to us. The Word who had no beginning because he was God was present in the beginning when there was nothing, the Word already was. The Word was with God, the Father, as God the Son. All things were made through Him. Nothing exists that He didn't create. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. He's the source and sustainer of all life. And His life is the light to reveal who the righteous and holy God is, who sinful man is, and who the Savior is who came to rescue and redeem. And this is how he came. The word became flesh. Wayne Grudem, in his wonderfully eloquent and brief way of saying things, this is in your notes, the incarnation is the act of God, the Son, whereby he took to himself a human nature. That's a pretty simple Simple statement. We're going to sing this in just a minute. Why we sing, Hark the Herald Angels, Angels Sing. Veiled in flesh. I almost want to sing it. That was off key though. What did you hear that? There's a little, little song in there, but it was way off key. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Sing it with me. Hail the incarnate deity. Born as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Oh, I almost want to say, forget the rest of the sermon, come up here. But not yet, not quite yet. Um, so in your, I put in your notes what we read today. We're not going to read that again, but I put it in your notes just so you would have that available to you in terms of our statement of faith and this declaration of Jesus incarnate. John used the word flesh intentionally to the Greek mind. It would have been vulgar to associate God with the flesh. Uh, they thought the spirit is good and anything physical is bad. Well, the Son of God, listen, took on all that constitutes human life. It doesn't say he changed into flesh as though he stopped being the word when he became flesh. He didn't put on human flesh like it was some kind of costume, like it was Halloween time. And he's just going to put on flesh as his costume. That's not it. And then change back out of his costume and turn back into God. No, that wasn't it. He took upon himself the whole of human nature without losing a molecule of his deity. And Lord, that probably doesn't even, <laughs> that probably doesn't even speak well of you. He doesn't lose any of his deity. One person, two natures. God, without ceasing to be God, became a man. A real man with flesh and bones, nerves and emotions and frailties. True deity and true humanity together. Not half man and half God, but all of man and all of God. And he dwelt among us. He pitched a tent. He, he's no longer just merely present in the form of smoke or fire or symbols. Uh, or he's not just in a, in a tent or a tabernacle. God was now present personally in Jesus. He was present personally in Jesus. All of this so that he might utterly identify with you. With all that you suffer as a fallen human being living in a fallen world. So listen, let's just, let's just go to your life now. Um, how have we been tempted this week? 
No one was tempted more than Jesus. You know how sometimes people can, you know, I can't run down the street nowadays. But there was a time I used to be able to run a couple miles, right? Because you'd train for it. There, there were some things one person can endure that somebody else can't. One person gives up way quicker than another person who can endure longer. Well, if that principle is true just with people, what if you're the eternal son of God? What does temptation look and feel like for someone who endures forever? That temptation is is far weightier than any temptation you'll ever experience. And that's your hope. Because he never gave in. You gave in way sooner, right? We gave in to the temptation. Oh, I fell again, Lord. I'm sorry. I don't know how you can forgive me. And Jesus saying, no, you know what? I was tempted worse than you, so I can rescue you more than you ever dreamed possible. You were lonely. Who has been lonely like him? You're tired and weary. Who hasn't been tired and weary like him? You're betrayed. Who hasn't been betrayed like him? And he's taken it to the nth degree. In our betrayal, we sin in bitterness. In our rejection, we we justify ourselves in our arrogance. And Jesus never sins. And then he reaches out his hands to us and says, now let me rescue you. I'm the one. I came to fully identify with every ounce of your suffering as a man. But he did way more than that, didn't he? Because we needed something more important than that. He came as God in the flesh, perfectly obeying every commandment, right? And so he dies a death. Now he can be a perfect substitute. Never sinned, never gave in, but now he's being treated as though he were the bitter one for all of us who struggle with bitterness. Thank God that he was punished for that bitterness. For all of us who've ever been arrogant and self-righteous and self-defensive and have to have the last word, oh my Jesus, thank you for dying for that. He lived a perfect life that we could never live so he could be a perfect substitute to pay the price for all your sins. And then as he rises from the dead, then he says, and now you know what I want to give you? I want to count my 33 years of obedience as though you lived it. I'm going to credit it to you. God's going to count it as yours. I'm going to give you my righteousness. And God's going to count it as your righteousness. What a God. That's why we sing, oh, come let us adore him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us mostly so he could die, right? Mostly so he could die. He was filled with grace and truth, and that's just talking about his steadfast love and faithfulness. He, that's the Old Testament. That phrase was being used in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's translated grace and truth, but he's steadfast love and faithfulness. He's all of grace, and he's all of truth. And from his fullness, Eric, you can come up now. From his fullness, we have all received Grace upon grace. Now let's, this is time, let's, let's get ready to celebrate. This is grace. There's different words the translators have tried to, to explain it. Grace substituted by grace. Grace in place of grace. Old Testament. There was, listen, just so everybody will know, there was grace in the Old Testament. Okay, God, God didn't all of a sudden get, like, get nice in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, well, what about Moses with the law? Come on, we'll talk about that in a second. 
This is, there was grace being poured out in the Old Testament. Oh, but it's being perfectly seen in Jesus in the New Testament. This is grace to save you, grace to sustain you, grace to satisfy you, grace to glorify you, to bring you all the way home. This is inexhaustible grace. Are you weary this morning? Then open your heart and your hands and say, God, I need another wave of your inexhaustible grace. Grace upon grace, please fill me afresh. The law was given to Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Well, here, this, we're just remembering that, that grace came to Moses too. Because the, before the law was given, what happened? Blood was shed. A sea parted. And then the law was given. There was grace then. But all of that was pointing to perfection of grace in Jesus. Amen? Guys, stand up. The verse closes by saying, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, meaning he's, Jesus is face to face with the Father from all eternity, God the Father and God the Son. And it's only in Jesus that you can know God. It's not being narrow-minded. It's actually God being very kind. I don't know if people say, well, I'm not, you know, Christianity is too narrow-minded. Well, let's say you need a heart transplant, but the doctor comes up to you and says, you know, I think let's work on your kidney. Uh, you're going to want a narrow-minded doctor, aren't you? God's been very kind to say, this isn't hard. The way to be saved, the way to know God is to behold him, Jesus Christ, the Savior, fully God, fully man, fully able to supply all the grace you need for your salvation, for your sanctification, for your satisfaction. Stephen, Amy, do you want to, you guys want to come up here? Guys, we want to invite you to pray even during the singing. We've got our prayer team up here. Where do you need a fresh filling of the grace of God? Where do you, where are you suffering and you just need him to lead you through it? Just there's so many ways that the Lord could have spoken to you today. And so we don't want to get tie that net too tightly. Guys, would you lead us? In